invite you to turn in your Bibles, beloved, to Galatians chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 to 29, the longish passage, but we're going to be uh, touching on various points throughout the message. So <clears throat> hear the word of the Lord from the Apostle Paul to the churches, churches in Galatia and to us. O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of God. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of the faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made, uh, to, were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to, who, to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And may the Lord add his blessing to the hearing and understanding of his word this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text that your Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write so many years ago. We pray that you would help us to understand it in its original setting, but also as it relates directly to us as heirs of the promise, as, as uh, the seed of Abraham ourselves. We pray that Christ would be placarded, billboarded before a watching world, and that your spirit would be at work in our midst, and that you would be glorified in all that is said and done. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. <clears throat> Beloved, several years ago, church historian Mark Knoll and Catholic lay theologian Carol Nystrom co-authored a book entitled, Is the Reformation Over? While the book has a helpful discussion, uh, in my opinion, on the history of the relationship between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism since the Reformation, and helpfully maps out the current attempts at uh, ecumenicity that is getting along between Protestants and Roman Catholics. Let me go on record here and now on this 502nd anniversary of the nailing of Martin Luther's 95 theses on the door of the church at the castle Wittenberg and say that the Reformation was not a tempest in a teapot and while Noel and Nystrom think the Reformation is over for all practical purposes, I beg to differ. Now, I don't believe in anti-Catholic bigotry. This is a matter of principial difference. This disagreement is about what the Christian faith is all about. Why did the Son of God become incarnate? Why did he go to the cross? Why did he arise from the tomb? At the time of the Protestant Reformation and its immediate aftermath, beloved, its leaders often talked about uh, what caused or led up to the Reformation. Why did it happen at all? Borrowing from the insights of the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle, they talked about different causes, and the reformed uh, reformers referred to, over time, referred to both the material and the formal principles of the Reformation. The material principle of the Reformation is the doctrine of faith, or the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Material principle means what the stuff is made of. The material of the pulpit is wood. That's the sound wood makes. 
Next week, Lord willing, we will look at the formal principle, that is the principle that gives the Reformation its shape, that is the doctrine of Scripture. The doctrine of justification by faith alone, beloved, is the substance of the dispute between the Reformers and the medieval Roman Catholic Church. It is the content of the dispute. It's what it's all about. Now, uh, we know that uh, it didn't, the insight into Paul's teaching about justification that is revealed in the pages of the book of Romans and the book of Galatians from which we have just read, uh, this insight took time. If you look at the at the 95 Theses, there's not a re reference at all to justification. It's, a, it's a, an intended debate about the penitential system. I don't mean prison system. I mean the, the, the system within the Roman Catholic Church of penance, where you go to conf give confession and get absolution, and then you're told what you need to do in order to get absolution. Well, how do you demonstrate your contrition? This week, uh, we will consider the meat of the matter, the heart of the matter. And so I want us to, to consider three points. Confusion reigns about what justification is. Two, that the Apostle Paul thought that getting justification right was a matter of life and death. And three, we are justified because Jesus was cursed for us. So our first point, the confusion reigns about what justification is. What is it? It's the engine that drove the Reformation. How does a sinful creature stand in the presence of a holy God and be found acceptable in his sight? The very thing that uh, the, the, the monk, Martin Luther, wrestled with. How does one find acceptance as a sinner with a holy God? And we find the definition of what justification is in our secondary standards. The Westminster Confession and the Larger and Shorter Catechism have chapters and questions devoted to this topic. And to boil it down, Justification is the divine declaration that we are forgiven our sins, past, present, and future, and are found righteous in the sight of God because the righteousness of Christ has been credited to our account. Let me repeat that. There's two parts to a proper and full understanding of justification. How a sinner is found acceptable in the sight of a holy God. It is by way of divine declaration that we are forgiven our sins, past, present, and future. And momentarily you'll see why I stress that. And that we are found righteous in the sight of God because of the crediting of Christ's righteousness to our account. The, the technical word is imputation. Now, if you're a bookkeeper, you probably understand that right away. Or if you're a lawyer, 
but, but many folk wouldn't necessarily understand that language. That we are reckoned to be right with God because our sins have been forgiven, and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. See why Zechariah 3 relates to this past, to our sermon this morning. In that account, the high priest Joshua stood before the Lord in filthy garments. Not only was he stripped of the filthy garments and therefore left naked, he was clothed in pure garments. That is meant to be a teaching pointing us forward to what Christ has done for us. Now, why does confusion reign about what justification is? Well, confusion reigns because there are various definitions of various ways of understanding what the justification is, uh, and sometimes they overlap, and so it's not always obvious that there's confusion. And keep that definition I gave you, the divine declaration that we are forgiven our sins and found righteous in the sight of God. That's the shorthand version. That's the two parts, forgiveness of sins and found righteous in the sight of God. Both of those must be present. Other views that have been found acceptable throughout the life of the church and that have caused shipwreck I dare say, in many instances, justification by our works. That is, by our obedience to the law, that is the problem that Paul was addressing to the church in Galatia that we read from in chapter 3. There was the temptation. There, the, there were men from Jerusalem, supposedly, sanctioned by the church in Jerusalem that showed up telling the believers in Galatia, the various churches in that region, that, uh, yes, we are justified. That is, we are found righteous in the sight of God. We are found acceptable. Even though we are sinners, we are found acceptable by faith in Christ. Should have been a full stop. But it goes on, and our obedience to the law. Okay, that's a problem. That's what Paul was facing in Galatia. A similar misunderstanding of the graciousness of the gospel found in justification is the idea that we are justified by our sanctification. I know these are technical words, but they are found in the scriptures. Well, what does it mean to be sanctified? That is, if we look to our standards, the Westminster Standards, we see that justification is an act of God's free grace. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. That means it occurs over time. Yes, there is a definitive break with sin that occurs by virtue of our union with Christ in his resurrection from the dead, Romans chapter 6. But then there is the ongoing growth that we experience, I hope, as Christians in this life, that after years, uh, as Christians, we will be more mature, more grown up as believers, 
but there is a misunderstanding that we are justified based upon our sanctification. That's the error of medieval Roman Catholicism, that we are justified at the end after a life of sanctification, which means you could never have assurance of salvation. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church has declared that unless you have a special revelation from God, you cannot in this life be assured of your salvation. You won't know until you get to heaven after spending a period of time in purgatory. Okay? Now, the, uh, and that view, by the way, for those of us who've been in the Sunday school class, is a view that we unfortunately have to lay at the feet of St. Augustine, our hero. He, he really did not have a good grasp on the, the fact that justification is an act, not a work. It's an act that happened like that in an instant. A work is something that occurs over time, slowly but surely. In our circles, uh, this idea is uh, sometimes couched in the idea that we are justified by the internal working of the Holy Spirit in us. We'll find that on occasion. And if you come across that in Reformed circles, run away from it as fast as you can. The work of the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential. The work of the Holy Spirit in us is absolutely essential, beloved. But it is not the basis of our justification, because the basis of our justification is the perfect, personal, and perpetual, or exact and entire, obedience to the law. Anybody here as a Christian ever done that? Don't raise your hand like I'm doing. I've not done it, okay? The point is, none of us as Christians, even after 50, 60, 70, 80 years, can claim to have done that, to obey the law perfectly, personally, perpetually, exactly, and entirely. Only one person. Only one person ever has. And that's the person in whom you must put your trust to be found acceptable in God's sight. Some think that justification is a sign that we are in the church. Some, that's what they say. They, uh, they use technical languages. They say inclusion in the covenant community. But what they mean is that we're part of the church. Uh, and that, of course, confuses the results of justification with justification, with being found acceptable in the sight of God. Those of us who have, by God's grace, been found acceptable in the sight of God, not because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ, we are, by baptism, brought into the, the church, or we've been baptized as infants prior to our coming to faith. But that's the implication, that's the results of being found acceptable in God's sight. That's not the reason for being found acceptable in God's sight. You can be in church for the whole of your life, but if you haven't trusted in Christ, that being in the church will not save you. That's, uh, we're not done yet, okay? Uh, some think that justification is only for past, the forgiveness of past sins. 
I grew up in the Wesleyan tradition, that is the understanding, the Methodist understanding of justification. You are justified for your past sins. You can't be justified for present and future sins. That's because they deny election, predestination, things of that nature. So that you can be forgiven for what you've done up to this point, but what happens after? Well, you can seek forgiveness, but there's never a sense of, of I am forgiven past, present, and future, and therefore I can rest in Christ. Now, we're not resting in ourselves. We're resting in Christ. But uh, those uh, who think the justification is only about the forgiveness of past sins are not able to rest completely in Christ. So what difference does it make that there's confusion? Well, only one of these definitions is biblical and therefore true. Only one of these definitions encourages spiritual health. Only the justification outlined in Scripture at the end of the day actually justifies. That is, the understanding of justification is the divine declaration that we are forgiven for our, all our sins, past, present, and future, and are found righteous in the sight of God because of the righteousness of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. So is your understanding of justification soundly biblical? That's the question you must answer. And that brings us to our second point. The Apostle Paul thought that getting this matter correctly was a matter of life and death. A careful reading of both Romans and Galatians reveals that Paul was deeply concerned with the doctrine and experience of justification. Now, beloved, we're not talking just about the doctrines. We're talking about what the doctrine points to, the reality that it points to, the reality that it teaches us about. It's not just about getting your, crossing your T's and dotting your I's, although I suppose if you were an English teacher, that would be important. It's also important that we understand this because if we don't, it affects our experience of the gospel and it robs us of the joy of salvation. Robs us of the joy of our salvation. So it is important that we get the doctrine and the experience right. Don't be fooled by those who say that Christianity is a life and not a doctrine. Dr. Machen, the founder, one of the founding ministers of the OPC, wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. And in that book he says, don't be fooled. Christianity is a doctrine that yields a life. The life grows out of the teach. All doctrine is simply another word for teaching. That's all it is. Paul was concerned that the Galatians in particular, the churches that were in that region of the Roman Empire uh, known as Galatia, they, he was afraid that the 
these so-called Judaizers, these teachers that came from Jerusalem, that they tried to bring Christians under the slavish yoke of a works righteousness. That is, you would find favor with God by obeying the law. Now, understand that this is a perversion of the Old Testament religion. This is not how the, Old how the saints in the Old Testament were saved. They were saved the way we are, by faith in Christ. But this was a teaching that, in, in particular, the teaching was that you, you, were, you were justified by grace through faith in Christ plus circumcision, if you're a man. Because the undergoing the rite of circumcision was a sign that you were now serious about obeying God's law. Paul pointed out to the churches in Galatia that we cannot be justified by works of the law, since, as I've already said, that requires perfect and complete, that is, exact and entire obedience. That's why we revel, we joy in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because that perfect obedience is provided to us by grace, through faith in Christ alone. It's either one of two ways, beloved. You either are found acceptable in God's sight by your own work or by the work of Christ. Those are the two options. Those are the two roads. And by the way, uh, the, the perfect obedience road got closed with the fall, with the exception of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ever since the fall, we are born in sin and cannot obey the law perfectly or completely. To put it crassly or bluntly, if we insist on justification by works of the law, then we will be condemning ourselves and any others we persuade with our error. Think about that. If we insist upon justification, that is acceptance with God, by works of the law, then we will be condemning ourselves and any others we persuade. Paul points to Abraham as he also does in Romans 4, as an example of someone justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law. That's what he means when he says the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham and he was counted righteous because he trusted in the God who would one day send his son in the flesh. That's why I've said Old Testament saints are justified by the coming Messiah, we are justified by faith in the Messiah who has come and will one day come again. We who trust in God to save us as Abraham did are the true children of God, not his biological offspring. Those who trust in Christ the way that Abraham did, we are the offspring of Abraham. We are Abraham's seed because we put our faith in the seed with a capital S, 
who died and was raised to new life for us. Are you of the spiritual seed of Abraham? That brings us to our third point. We are justified because Jesus was cursed for us. If we commit ourselves to being justified by our obedience to the law, beloved, we are indeed under the worst, worst curse possible. Possession and knowledge of the Mosaic law is not sufficient. In fact, in our sinful state, it is what condemns us. It is only as those who are united to Christ, who, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, in, that we endeavor after new obedience. The law is not our enemy, except in the sense that we are in our natural state. In our regenerated state, the law is something we love. It serves as a guide for the Christian in this life. Now, in the way that Paul is looking at the law of Moses, remember our perpetual exact and entire obedience is demanded. And if we do not meet that demand, we are condemned to eternal damnation. There is no post-mortem evangelism, despite what some writers would have us believe. If you do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in this life, all other things being equal, what I mean is uh, there are those who are among the elect who die in infancy or who uh, have various... Uh, uh, shortcomings, uh, handicaps that do not allow them to demonstrate or manifest to us their belief, who are nevertheless among the elect, but also by the grace of God in Christ. Okay, if you don't fall in those two categories, then there must be explicit faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Now, what is it that we must believe? Or what is it that's so important? It's that it's that Jesus willingly took our condemnation upon himself. The condemnation that will fall upon the, the whole world at the end of the age when Christ comes back at his second coming, that has already fallen upon Christ for you and me. We don't have to fear the coming judgment at the end of the age. That judgment has already fallen upon Jesus on the cross. And he was sinless. He did not have a sinful disposition. But he took the punishment that we deserved upon himself. That's the, that's the historical basis for our being acceptable in the sight of God. By taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul and going to the cross and dying in our place and in our stead, or the shorthand for us. He has freed us from the demands and condemnation of the law. Jesus died on the cross, and in the process died to the demands and condemnation of the law himself. 
and we who look to him as our savior share in that victory. We share in his victory over sin and death and Satan through his own death. And because God raised Jesus from the dead, the curse pronounced upon him has been reversed, and so it is reversed for you and me who trust in Christ. That's what Paul is talking about in Galatians 3, when it says that the cursed is any man who is hanged on a tree. That's from the book of Deuteronomy. That's remind, Paul is reminding us that Jesus, if he was not the God-man, died, and had he not been raised, he'd still be under a curse. The divine curse spoken by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, I believe. Uh, that curse would still hang over Christ's head had he not been raised. You see, his being raised, among other things, is the sign of the Father's approval. You might call it a divine's good housekeeping approval stamp. Do you see why getting justification right is so important? It provides the basis for our assurance of faith and the joy in the Holy Spirit. And it is the impetus for our own endeavor after increasing obedience, beloved. It is the only sure foundation that you and I have. And so the Reformation was not a tempest in a teapot. It was about what is important to God. So important that the Father sent the Son to live and to die for us. So in conclusion, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein, one, all our sins are pardoned, past, present, and future, and two, we are declared righteous in the sight of God. Not because God decides, yeah, it doesn't matter. The law doesn't need to be upheld. That's, if you've ever heard that, and I know you've heard that because I've heard that from the pulpits in different places. If you've ever heard that, that's nonsense. The, the law is upheld by Christ's death and resurrection. Two, we are declared righteous in the sight of God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is alone accounted ours by faith. Beloved, Martin Luther did not invent or concoct the doctrine. It was taught in the Old Testament. It was taught by our Lord in Luke chapter 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. That is the point of that parable. And it is taught in the rest of the New Testament. We ought to be grateful to God that in his mercy, he has revealed this precious truth to us in his word. For without the word, we could not know and would not know about what Christ has done for us and for our salvation. And beloved, let me remind you that the truth of the justification by grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ alone did get buried for a time under the debris of various misunderstandings for many, many years until it was recovered by Dr. Luther. 
Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the freedom that you have given us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would enable us to walk daily in the light of the grace and the gift and the mercy of justice that has been satisfied, not by us, but by our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.